0: It is not clear to me which government agency is actually responsible for managing the possibility of foreign interference in an election period. Failing to designate a lead agency leads to the risk that people may make decisions on the run, and that is not a recipe for good decision
1: making. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this program from our Security Summit series, Rory Medcalf is joined by Senator Jenny McAllister, the newly appointed Deputy Chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the Elders' past, present and emerging. Senator McAllister, thanks so much for joining us at the National Security Podcast. There's so many things we can talk about, and I know you've made time out of your your parliamentary uh, schedule to, to see us at the National Security College. I wanted to actually begin on a slightly personal note to talk about how is it that uh, a senator with your experience, your background, uh, a career before parliament that involved working on uh, very much on environment issues, for example, private sector, um, president of the uh, Australian Labor Party, federally, all of those things, and, and someone who is, is from the left. How did you become so involved in national security?
0: It is an interesting story in some ways. Uh, the start is comes about because I think I turned up in the Senate at the time when we needed a senator to go onto the committee. And I think there might have been a view that I had a capacity for detail that might be useful in that forum. I think the bigger question is, why do I stay? I have found it a really technically interesting place, of course. The work is very interesting. But I think more broadly, the committee benefits from having a diversity of experiences in the room. We do have people who come to the committee with deep backgrounds in intelligence or um, who've uh, served in the military. But it's actually quite useful, I think, to have people who have a broader policy background. And the way that I approach most of the questions that come before us is to try and think about the whole of society impact, both of what we are trying to do and secure and the impacts of the measures that we're proposing to to meet those ends. And in both instances, I think it's quite useful to be a person who's worked broadly in politics, who's thought about how societies work, how organisations work, how groups work, and be able to start thinking about how the, the practical effect of our policy proposals on those those institutions and those organisations.
1: So we'll come to this a bit later on. I think, um, part of your role, of course, on the, um, parliamentary, uh, joint committee on intelligence and security. And I should, uh, congratulate you as well because we understand that you've been nominated, nominated to be deputy, um, chair of that committee. But, um, part of that very much involves you gathering insights, perspectives from, uh, I guess, all walks of life, civil society, the private sector, anyone who wants to make a submission to your inquiries. Uh, and so I'd love to come to a few particulars of that a bit later on. But let's um, stick with the theme of that whole of society perspective for a moment, if we may. Um, what does national security mean to you? And uh, I guess, how do we get beyond the really narrow stereotypes that, that many of us are traditionally associated with um, with security?
0: It's a little bit of a cute way of talking about it but I think there really are some clues in the term. We are talking about securing the things which really define and enable us to continue as a nation and to and to thrive as a nation. And so for me, yes of course that means physical security and safety. That's a first order question for any government and certainly for the committee. But it also means our sovereignty and it also means our capacity to maintain an inclusive set of democratic institutions that the broad public can have confidence in.
1: So that's a, um, I I guess, a a very broad definition of security and it fits with, I guess, the the themes of some of the work we do here at the the National Security College, where we try to look at Australia's national security interests in a very inclusive way. And part of the work we do at the college actually really is to try to build the capability and the workforce for Australia's national security uh, into the future. One... Question in relation to that is whether the national security community we have, all of the agencies and departments, the military, police, intelligence, and indeed I would argue the role of parliament as well, of course, is that truly representative of the diversity of Australia? Um, diversity, whether it's in terms of, of gender or in terms of uh, ethnic background, life experience, and so forth. So I'd be very interested to hear a little more from you. On this issue, uh, because I think you would have some some particular insights into that.
0: I think the empirical evidence tells you that the answer to that is no. Uh, but there are certainly uh, the, the the national security community and workforce certainly is not as gender diverse as um, the community at large or the public sector. And Daniel Cave has done some excellent work in in, in analysing that. Uh, it's a also a shout out
1: for our colleague from from Aspi. A, a shout out not? to Danielle
0: yeah. at Aspi. Um, it's also probably not as diverse from um, a multicultural perspective. I think that the leadership of the national security community is quite conscious of this, and one of the things that I think see and that I think is quite pleasing are quite deliberate efforts to cultivate and train female leaders, in particular. I think this really matters for a range of reasons. Of course it matters simply for equity reasons. But it's there's a security imperative there too. Because what you see in most other domains is that whether it's economics or medicine or business, a diverse range of leaders produces diverse analysis, a diverse appreciation of risks and a and a better rounded strategic outlook. I think that's almost certainly true in national security as well. Um another shout out uh, you know Elise Thomas has done some excellent work looking at the impacts of extreme sexism in the radicalization pathway online i don't think it's a coincidence that it is a woman writing about those questions i also think they're very important questions to put onto the agenda and it's a nice example of why diversity can matter because it matters in terms of the issues that we pay attention to
1: so this is as much about capability as it is really about the about inclusivity or or re- representation. Um, still on that sense of if you like, ensuring that the Australian national security effort is is truly representative of, of 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 this country, there's the role of the private sector, there's the role of state governments, the role of the territories. And civil society, uh, you know, I would argue that this is not—it's you know—it's no longer an elite sport if ever it was for the sort of national security caste that we have in Canberra, even though they work very hard at their, at their jobs and, and are very dedicated. You've got previous background in state government and, and the private sector, and uh, uh, as noted, uh, you know, you see, for example, representatives of um, of, of companies uh, making submissions to your committee it would be great to get your sense of how you see the roles and responsibilities of states and territories and industry in uh, in national security and maybe how that's evolving.
0: The national security task has changed quite significantly in the relatively short time that I've been on the committee. I joined in 2016 and in the five years since, There has been a reorientation of national security effort. Uh, At the time I joined, much of the effort was focused on counter-terrorism and countering extremism. Increasingly, we are also interested in counter-espionage and countering foreign interference. That latter task is in some ways significantly more complex for national security leaders. requires an interface with a very broad range of Australian institutions. The impacts of our decisions potentially uh, fall upon a very broad range of Australian citizens and I think it's going to mean that at the Australian government level, national security leaders need to become more skillful and agile in engaging all of the other parties um, to the national security challenge that's inevitably going to mean a greater capacity to engage with state governments and a greater capacity to engage with business. If I think about the government question as just one example, the state governments conventionally are closer to the ground. They're closer to the people. We've relied on them very heavily in terms of countering violent extremism. Because much of the work that we need to do to secure our sovereignty and our democratic capability actually lies in building up community capacity. It doesn't lie in those traditional tools necessarily of law enforcement or intelligence gathering. It's actually about multicultural engagement, building up community strength, teaching school children how to navigate the internet safely and competently all of these things require some of that face-to-face work that state governments are actually very good at, uh, and I think that there's going to have to be an increasing uh, strength in that relationship around sort of national security questions.
1: Is there more we can do to, I guess, raise their awareness of their, you know, their responsibilities and their and their opportunities in in that regard? I mean, is that is that a, a pretty even story around the country?
0: I think that's part of the task, isn't it? It's giving state governments and territories the information that they need to think about their own role in national security. And back to your earlier remarks, it probably also means broadening definitions and concepts of national security because it's it's there in many ways that the role for state government
1: lies. And so on the private sector, um, and i I'd like to go in a moment to some of the work you do, particularly at the um, with the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security P- (PJCS). I think uh, it's called "Inside the Inside the Tent." Um, you know, you often hear private sector perspectives on national security. How are they going with their journey on understanding their roles, their rights, their responsibilities as national security actors?
0: I heard one business leader say recently that they were. On a journey, and it was a bit like the journey that they embarked upon to start incorporating environmental sustainability into their overall thinking about risk. I think business, there's a lot of goodwill in the business community to work with government to manage national security risk, but it's going to require uh, an uplift in skill. On the government side in understanding business imperatives and the way that businesses make decisions and execute decisions. And on the business side, it's going to require an upskilling in information about how governments appraise national security risk and the kinds of interventions and uh, responses that governments are looking for from business. In the end, that's going to be dependent on strong relationships and Building some new institutions that allow business and government to talk together about how to manage these risks in a shared way.
1: There's a big agenda there, and I'd, I'd note that one one um, program we've advocated here at the college is is much greater career mobility between um, senior executive roles in the the public and private sectors, pre- precisely to build that um, that shared culture of um, of awareness. Let's go, uh, Senator, to the uh, committee. Specifically, so we've we've spoken a few times about uh, this committee on this um, on this podcast. We're big fans of the PJCs here at the National Security College, but it's not, uh, if you like, a, a committee of the Australian Parliament that's particularly well understood outside of uh, expert circles, national security circles, and its role and its workload seem to have grown pretty substantially in recent years. So it would be great just to get your explanation of what does the committee do? Why does it matter?
0: The committee's formal task is to oversight the administration and expenditure of agencies, which essentially means does the national security spend the money government gives it in the way that it's intended, uh, but also to review legislation that relates to national security. And they are the two big tasks for the committee. Increasingly, when government allocates new powers to an agency or establishes a new offence, the legislation requires those new powers and those offences to be reviewed within a certain time and so the committee also plays a role not just in reviewing new legislation but actually taking a look at existing legislation and how it's functioning. It does carry a big workload. But it plays a really important function, and, and and it's this. The committee does most of its work in public. Yeah. I think there's a kind of misunderstanding that it's a secret committee that yeah. does its work in, in private, and certainly it has the capacity to Which hold- Which happens
1: in some of the US equivalents, right? It's
0: yes, there. and certainly we have the capacity to hold uh, classified hearings and to receive classified briefings, and we do do that. But we try and do as much of our work in public as we can. It really matters because I think the Australian public need to see that security agencies, government agencies are willing to come into a public forum and explain the way that they approach security questions. And it is also incredibly important to create an environment in which community leaders, business leaders, civil society activists can also come into a public forum and have their ideas about the impact of government legislation heard, examined, and dealt with. The committee places a great emphasis on having a bipartisan approach to national security
1: questions. That's really noticeable, I think.
0: From a Labor perspective, that doesn't mean a blank check. What it does mean is always consistently, (laughs) unvaryingly, putting the national interest first. And trying to create a culture on the committee where we are examining the policy questions in a very, very even handed way. That means treating all of our witnesses uh, courteously uh, and also really scrutinising the information that's put before us um, by all of the witnesses that come before the committee.
1: So, um, a couple of examples of work that uh, the committee has has conducted recently or has underway um, one is of course the um, the role of the committee in in, in really scrutinizing the new um, bill on critical infrastructure which of course uh, is intended to to strengthen uh, laws we've had in place since I think 2018 and um, pretty wide-ranging, and I understand your committee's reported back recently on this with a recommendation, among other things, to essentially split the bill into um, into two slices. I'd love to hear why you reached that decision in particular, and maybe how that relates to the, uh, the, the private sector perspectives we've spoken about.
0: The government advanced an argument that we needed some new powers and some new instruments to manage risks to critical infrastructure. I think we all should accept that that advice is grounded in a a, a robust appreciation of the facts. The challenge is to do that in a way that doesn't overly burden the business community and allows them to manage their business affairs in a way that is predictable and reasonable What the committee found was that the business community were perturbed by the speed with which the legislation had been introduced, and they were also concerned that many of the key decisions about implementation were to be deferred to regulations, which practically meant that the parliament if we proceeded along the government's timetable, table, would pass the legislation with a lot of the key decisions and the key implications for business not yet known or understood. The committee felt that that was not helpful in constructing an environment where business would be able to work with government in an ongoing basis. And so our recommendation was that we split the bill in two, that the urgent powers that government and agencies said that they required to deal with a threat be put in place immediately But that the broader questions about how these many, many businesses and industries would implement a positive security obligation should be deferred to allow business and government to work together over a longer period of time and hammer out some of the details together.
1: And a positive security obligation just to define what that is. That, that 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 essentially would require would put the onus on business to what to, to report risk, to 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 allow very close government scrutiny of their uh, protections of critical infrastructure and I guess to allow government interventions. Is that is that how you define it or is it more than that?
0: It's really asking business to proactively analyze their own risk yeah. and to do so in a framework that they agree with government. Um, and I think inevitably it means creating some pathways for business to get the information that they need from government about how the, what those risks actually are
1: so we'll see how this one um this one plays out because i assume that um you know there's a, i'm sure there's a strong imperative from government and the agencies to have new powers in 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 place let's go to something else uh that's i think very close to your uh your 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 policy heart at the moment and that is your own private members bill uh which uh would i i guess ideally from your perspective expand the um Uh, the committee's oversight of the National Security Agency or the intelligence agencies uh, from, I think, from six to 10, and would also uh, empower the committee to to request uh, inquiries from the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, among other things. I'd love to hear more about this uh, private members' bill, what you aim to achieve and what your real priorities are there.
0: I think the starting point has to be that, we should always support our national security agencies to have the powers that they need to keep Australians safe. The practical experience over the last 20 years has been that those powers have increased substantially. The resourcing applied to national security has increased substantially. And in recent years, the organisational arrangements for agencies have changed significantly. With increased powers and resources, should come increased scrutiny, and that's been at the heart of the way Labor has approached um, the oversight question for quite some time. Uh, my predecessor, Senator Faulkner, had a private senator's bill that he championed. It was when he left the parliament, it was championed by Senator Wong, and I've really picked up the baton tradition. <laughs> <laughs> um, the There are a number of things that the bill recommends, but I'll go to the two that I think are most important. The first is that the committee should be able to conduct inquiries on its own motion. At the moment, the committee can only examine matters that are referred to it by the minister um, or by the parliament. The committee is in a unique position to identify issues, concerns, problems it should be able to initiate an inquiry on its own motion and, and pursue those issues. The second thing goes to a long standing question around what is termed in the business operational oversight. Um, should the committee have visibility on the minute detail of the things that agencies are doing day to day, often things which are highly classified and kept secret? The way the bill appro- proposes to approach it is this: We, I believe, that the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, who is formally in charge mm. of operational oversight, has the necessary expertise and resources to do that job, and, and that institution is an immensely important part of the oversight architecture. But that institution reports to the executive, it doesn't report to the parliament. And my bill proposes that if the committee was concerned about an operational question, it should be able to refer that matter to the existing oversight body, the inspector general. And when he or she has undertaken a review looking at very secret questions using uh, the very extensive Mm. powers that are allocated to that institution, that report should then be provided back to the PJCIS I don't think it should be the PJCIS's job to delve into to minute operational detail. I don't think that is a job that parliamentary committees are well suited to. But if there are policy or legislative implications from an inquiry of that kind, I do think the committee ought to know about it. And it's on that basis that I propose this mechanism, essentially a greater capacity for collaboration between the PJCIS and the IGES on our individual and separate mandates.
1: And I understand there's some consistency there with, with recommendations we've seen in the independent reviews over the years by uh, Dennis Richardson into um, our national security laws and by uh, my predecessor here at the college, Michael Lestrange and Stephen Merchant into Australia's uh, intelligence agency. So it sounds like you're not alone in this, uh, in this thinking, Senator.
0: No, and the government is really dragging its feet on it, is the truth. These proposals have been put forward, as I indicated, by my predecessors. Um, Senator Faulkner and Senator Wong have made these proposals. Uh, Merchant and Lestrange looked at it. Richardson looked at it. We've seen very significant change in the national security architecture under this government, but almost no change in the oversight arrangements, and I think that's a problem.
1: I'd note also that uh, the National Security College has a paper out from one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Will Stoltz, that uh, looks at not only these issues, but I think quite provocatively the question of whether we in fact need a a minister for intelligence, uh, an assistant minister to the PM on that. Um, I don't know if you have a view on that, um, Senator.
0: I'm not sure that that would be the first order of reform that I would pursue, although I, I, I read Dr. Stoltz's paper and I thought it was really interesting. It's very helpful to have a range of voices thinking about how the oversight arrangements are constructed. Niche, though, it is.
1: Well, it's all all niche until you need it, I guess. We'll be back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, if. only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Let's go to the the bigger themes if, if, if we can again, because thanks for that exposition of what the committee does and how it works, and, and I think some really prime examples of its work and how you'd like to see that strengthened. From what I'm hearing, some of the really big themes uh, that uh, seem to inspire your work in this space are about trust, are about uh, really the public's trust in the institutions, of government institutions of the national security community, the intelligence agencies and the democratic institutions more generally. So that's sort of the common thread I'm hearing in all of this. Um, I'd like to turn the spotlight a little bit away from the agencies for a moment just to, um, put the spotlight back on, on parliament uh, because, if you like, uh, our, our faith in parliament's oversight of the agencies can only be consistent with our our, our faith in parliament. How would you see um, public trust in democratic institutions at the moment as really an input to our overall cohesion in, in national security?
0: Trust matters enormously and right across the Western world, certainly, we've seen many key institutions experience a decline in public trust. It's not confined to parliaments. It's true also for churches, for businesses, uh, for other kinds of institutions. Politicians do do particularly badly, uh, which is actually a source of real sadness for me because my actual practical experience is seeing the many people around me who go to work every day trying to make Australia better. But I think we have to grapple with the fact that trust in politics and parliamentarians is declining. There are some very obvious things we need to do. It's a 1,000 days since there was a promise from the government to introduce a National Integrity Commission of some kind. We're yet to really see any movement on that. I think that's a problem. It matters... More generally, though, that citizens trust that the society that they're in is serving their needs. And there's some very interesting data about uh, the distribution of trust within the society. People who are very comfortable, who describe themselves as very materially comfortable, are much, much more likely to say that they trust government. People who would describe their own financial circumstances as precarious are very, very unlikely to say that they trust that government is working for them. And there's a lesson in that, I think, for societies. If we allow very high levels of inequality, very high levels of material deprivation, very significant um, sort of precarious financial circumstances to persist, we do see an undermining of trust. And it's not just trust in government, it's trust in other people as well. So the material conditions that you know we construct the way the economy works matters a lot, uh, and there are some lessons there, I, I think, for governments in how, how we organise our economy and our welfare state.
1: And I guess um, if we're looking at the the horizon of security risk for Australia over the next ten years or more, I mean it's a pretty disturbing picture. It, certainly, in, in in my view, uh, not only you know the great power risk, great power competition. The um, I guess the Chinese uh, economic coercion that we've seen lately and the risks of conflict in the region, but also damage to social cohesion, terrorism right across the ideological spectrum, uh, the uh, impacts of climate and and, and environmental damage on, um, on, on national security, shocks like the pandemic and who knows what's coming next. So all of these seem to call for a more unified approach in a democracy without losing our democratic values, to dealing with with national security. Do you have any uh, just in, in sort of closing the conversation here, and I've got one last slightly provocative question to throw at you after this, but do you have any any thoughts on how you'd like to see Australia work in a more unified way to protect our interests and values?
0: I think we are moving into a very challenging time for Australia and one in which our strategic interests and our place within the international community might be more headline grabbing than it has been in recent decades. In fact, I think we're already seeing that there is more and more news interest in foreign affairs uh, and in security questions. I think we're going to have to be in a position to have a more more regular public conversation Mm. about questions of national security and that may be a little challenging for some people. Many of these questions, we are used mm. to dealing with these questions uh, sometimes in a, amongst a group of experts. We're not necessarily used to exposing all of these questions and decisions to um, the front page of the newspaper. But I think the public is going to need to be taught through um, the, the big, some of the big decisions that are before us. And public figures, whether they are parliamentarians or national security leaders or business leaders, are going to have to think about what their particular role in that conversation is going to be.
1: So my last question really is about democratic institutions again, and it's it, it's about their strength, their resilience, um, arguably I would say as part of you know, national critical infrastructure. Um, you've made observations in the past about the risks of disinformation, um, and like like many of us, you've seen the the challenge from uh, foreign interference. There's nothing wrong with benign forms of foreign influence, but foreign interference is, is a real issue. And whether our democratic institutions are threatened by that trust deficit we've spoken about, or whether um, there's the, the risks externally it still raises in my mind a question of whether we're actually doing enough to to cherish and protect those institutions as in many ways uh, national critical infrastructure. It's you know, the Australian Electoral Commission, uh, you know, Parliament and its institutions itself, uh, our, our political parties for that matter. I just wonder if you could um, close with some thoughts on that question. I do
0: think that we need to be very aware of the potential for malign actors to deliberately disrupt our political system. And we also need to be aware that the opportunity to do so is enhanced if we allow our political system and all of the infrastructure around it to degrade. And in that sense, yes, I think we ought to be seeing these things as key national security concerns. In the very short term, there is something I would like to see addressed. It is not clear to me which government agency is actually responsible for managing the possibility of foreign interference in an election period. I think that failing to designate a lead agency leads to the risk that people may make decisions on the run and that is not a recipe for good decision making this is something the government could fix quite simply. I think all of the agencies are aware of the risks. They are thinking about them, but what's required is some leadership from the top to really bring this to a close and to identify which agency is going to take the lead and to define the scope of their responsibilities.
1: Senator, thanks for um, illuminating that question. uh, And- I hope we'll be hearing more on this issue between now and the um, the next uh, federal election uh, next year. But look, given your your broad interest in in security, uh, along with all of the other areas of um, of, of Australia's um, Australia's interests and community that um, your work is focused on, uh, I think we'll be hearing more of you in this space. So thanks for your time and your uh, support of the National Security College, and thanks for joining us on the podcast.
0: Thanks, Rory. It's my very great pleasure.
1: Well, that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to hear more about Australia's Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, check out our conversation with its chair, Senator James Patterson, from earlier in the year. We'll pop a link in the show notes. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.